this is Candace Pringle, lead pastor of FE Church, and this is our podcast. All right, so the heart of Jesus is the series that we are in right now, and we began the series last week. I don't know about you, but I think this may end up being one of my favorites. <laughs> I have so enjoyed diving into the heart of Jesus, and not just his teachings, the things that he said, but really looking at the heart with which he said them, at the things he did, not just the things that he said, his behavior, not just his commands. It's been so interesting to look at that through a new lens, and the, the radical thing about Jesus was the way that he lived. Oh, he definitely taught some radical things, some life-changing things, things that changed the world forever. But the way that he lived was even more radical. And I think this is why God chooses to do things through incarnational ministry. We, we talk about this a lot, but it, incarnational ministry means he works through people, right? He works through flesh and blood. He sent Jesus for that reason. And I think it's because he... We, we can see the way that things are done, not just the words about them, right? Religion puts this high bar up and forces you to try to live up to it. It says fancy words, but most of us are never going to get there. Jesus came so we can see it's possible, it's, it's attainable, it's not just lofty and pie in the sky. Now, will we ever be perfect like Jesus? No. But he lived in such a way that we can try to emulate and, and get pretty close if we, we practice this for the rest of our lives. Look, last week we focused on the belonging nature of the ministry of Jesus, that he called to the outcast. That's something that we can do in everyday life. He, he sought out those who he, he knew were sinners, but they also knew they were sinners. Right? He ate with tax collectors. He wasn't afraid to touch the sick. He loved women and children and the sick and the lame and the blind and the deaf and, and the mute. He said, you belong here. You belong with me, right? That's only one of the six aspects of his ministry that we're going to cover through this series. Today, we're, we're going to look at the feeding aspect of his ministry. This is probably one of the most perplexing to me, personally. Not in that I can't understand it, but in that it doesn't feel like it fits, Right? Like if we were play, if we were to play one of these things is not like the other, this would be it. It would it would be the thing that is not like the others. I mean, belonging, humbling, teaching, deliverance, healing—they all seem to me to be very spiritual. Right? Jesus meeting a spiritual need, not a physical one. Now, I suppose the healing one would probably be the other one that is 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 physical. But for some reason, I just don't quite see it as like down to earth as feeding. The fact that Jesus came to earth, like bothered to be born of a virgin, live out his whole 30 years of life, began his ministry, and still stopped to feed people. Like the healings I get, but feeding them? Healing may last a lifetime. Feeding only lasts a few hours. A healing is something no one can do. Feeding is something pretty much anyone else can do. A healing is big and flashy and miraculous. Feeding seems trivial in comparison, doesn't it? 
just seems like it doesn't fit. And yet, it is something Jesus definitely did. It was the way that he lived his life, not necessarily just something he commanded us to do. So I want to show you a few examples of this in Scripture. We're going to read four pieces of Scripture today, and then we will draw a few conclusions about these together. Are you ready? All right, number one, feeding of the 5,000. Jesus fed 5,000 people, and it was actually a lot, lot more than that. It was 5,000 men, not including all the women and children. And I want to read this in Mark 6 today, uh, because most people don't know there are actually two times Jesus fed multitudes. We're going to read them both out of Mark today. Let, Let me read this to you first starting in verse 30, Mark 6, 30. The apostles returned to Jesus from their ministry tour and told him all they had done and taught. Then Jesus said, let's go off by ourselves to a quiet place and rest a while. He said this because there were so many people coming and going that Jesus and his disciples didn't even have time to eat. So they left by boat for a quiet place where they could be alone. But many people recognized them and saw them leaving and people from many towns ran ahead along the shore and got there ahead of them. Jesus saw the huge crowd as he stepped from the boat, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. I don't know about you, but if I'm going somewhere specifically to rest and I get off the boat and see multitudes of people, (sighs) right? I, I would be like, please, God, just I just needed a day, you know? just a day. But Jesus had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. Late in the afternoon, his disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the nearby farms and villages and buy something to eat. That seems like the compassionate thing, right? Send them away. Like, let's wrap this up. Wrap it up. I used to do this to Jason in the back sometimes. Wrap it up. Talking too long. (laughs) Wrap it up, right? Let's get these people off to eat. But Jesus said, you feed them. With what, Jesus? They asked. We have to work. We would have to work for months to even earn enough money to buy food for all these people. Like, what are you talking about? How much bread do you have, he asked. Go and find out. Again... (laughs) I'm looking at Jesus in this moment, like, okay, like I'm, I'm, I'll be obedient, but I'm just telling you right now, it's not going to be enough, right? They came back and reported, we have five loaves of bread and two fish. And Jesus told the disciples to have the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of 50 or 100. Jesus took the five loaves and two fish, looked up toward heaven and blessed them. Then breaking the loaves into pieces, he kept giving the bread to to the disciples so they could distribute it to the people. He also divided the fish for everyone to share, and they all ate as much as they wanted. And afterward, the disciples picked up 12 baskets of leftover bread and fish, which is probably my favorite detail in all of the Bible, because he gave them doggy baskets, y'all. There are 12 disciples, 12 leftovers, I'm just saying. I love doggy bags. Like, leftovers are my favorite. It's, I just love that detail. A total of 5,000 men and their families were fed. Immediately after this, Jesus insisted that his disciples get back into the boat and head across the lake to Bethsaida, where he sent the people, while he sent the people home. There is so much going on here. We could talk about 
how crazy this miracle was all day, probably. Like, the fact that Jesus and his disciples were seeking out solitude and they got multitudes, but Jesus didn't send them away is amazing in and of itself. He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. We see this a lot in scripture, actually, that God has a plan, but then he changes it because of what we ask of him. Right? Like, Make that fit into your theology for a second. Changes things a little bit, doesn't it? Like God has a plan, but he changes it for me. I'll tell you what that changes, or it should change in your soul, is it should change how you see prayer. Keep on knocking, right? The door will be open to you. Keep on knocking. Keep on praying. God does change his plans sometimes for us, little old us. God does change his plans based on what his people ask of him because... Uh, I think it's actually in James 5. He tells us uh, the, the, righteous, the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Right? That is an amazing and huge fact of life. If we really believed that, I think we'd pray a whole lot more. Never stop praying. We wouldn't give up when we don't get it the first time or the first hundred times. We would keep on knocking. But Jesus had compassion on them. That's why God changes his plans sometimes. That's why he answers prayers after the hundredth time or the thousandth time we ask. He has compassion on us. That's why he taught them here. But I think it's also why he fed them. Did you know this wasn't the only miracle of this kind? Jesus actually fed crowds like this twice. This crowd in Mark 6 was mostly made up of Jews. That's the region that they were in. But just two chapters later in Mark 8, we see Jesus fed multitudes again. And this time it's mostly Gentiles just based on the region that they were in. Allow me to read this too because I want you to, I'm, I'm giving you some context on either side of the story as well so that you can see this is definitely a separate miracle. It's twice Jesus did this, at least that we have it on record, right? Mark 8 verse 1, about this time another large crowd had gathered and the people ran out of food again. Jesus called his disciples and told them, I feel sorry for these people. They have been here with me for three days and they have nothing left to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will faint along the way. Can you imagine listening to a three-day-long sermon? That's a revival right there. That's all I'm saying. If I send them home hungry, they will faint along the way, for some of them have come a long distance. His disciples replied, how are we supposed to find enough food to feed them out here in the wilderness? This time you would think they'd have a clue. It happened before, right? <laughs> how are we supposed to find enough food to feed them out here in the wilderness? Jesus asked them. I almost imagine him saying it a little exasperated this time. <laughs> it's just my own filter. But how much bread do you have, guys? Come on right? Seven loaves, they replied. So Jesus told them, told all the people to sit down on the ground. Then he took the seven loaves, thanked God for them, and broke them into pieces. He gave them to his disciples who distributed the bread to the crowd. A few small fish were found too. So Jesus also blessed these and told the disciples to distribute them. They ate as much as they wanted. 
Afterward, the disciples picked up seven large baskets of leftover food. There were about 4,000 men in the crowd that day, and Jesus sent them home after they had eaten. Immediately after this, he got into a boat with his disciples and crossed over to the region of Dalmanutha. So, two miracles here where Jesus feeds many people miraculously because he was moved with compassion for them. In both cases, he doesn't feed them before he teaches. He feeds them after he teaches. Meaning, he's not just enabling them to sit and listen for longer. Right? This isn't about um, prolonging ministry. It's not practical in that way. He's just feeding them so they don't faint on the way home. That's just love. He loves them. He's providing for them as a father would to take care of them well. He's not an enabler, though. Remember, God is not an enabler, uh, meaning he doesn't. Con- Jesus doesn't continue to feed them miraculously over and over, day in and day out, right? In fact, um, after one of these miracles in particular, the crowd follows him again, and they're almost demanding food this time, and he sends them away. He teaches pretty harshly, and they're like, okay, dude, we're out. We were here for the bread, right? But... <clears throat> And he specifically did that. He's not an enabler, but he loves us and takes care of us as a father would. When we need him to, he moves with compassion. He is the provider. There are definitely, these are definitely the two most clear and most crazy examples of Jesus feeding people. But the more I thought about it, the more I found in Scripture. Now, these next two examples are some of my most favorite Bible passages of all time. There's just something about Jesus feeding people in these particular ways that I just find fascinating and just captures my imagination somehow. I just think Jesus is so cool. Like, the the way that he does these next two things, just so cool. So number three is water to wine. John 2 is where we find this example. Starting in verse 1, I want to read this to you. The next day there was a wedding celebration in the village of Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the celebration. The wine supply ran out during the festivities, so Jesus' mother told him, they have no more wine. He was not in charge of the celebration. The fact that she came to him makes me wonder. Maybe this had happened before. This is why this is fascinating. This is so interesting to know, like, what happened there? I wish we had more information. They have no more wine. Dear woman, he said, that is not our problem. My time has not yet come. But his mother told the servants, do whatever he tells you. I love that detail, too. Standing nearby were six stone water jars used for Jewish ceremonial washing. Each could hold 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus told the servants, fill the jars with water. When the jars had been filled, he said, now dip some out and take it to the master of ceremonies. So the servants followed his instructions. I feel like that's a miracle in and of itself. When the master of ceremonies tasted the water that was now wine... Not knowing where it had come from, though of course the servants knew, he called the bridegroom over. A host always serves the best wine first, he said. Then when everyone has had a lot to drink, he brings out the less expensive wine. But you have kept the best until now. This miraculous sign at Canaan Galilee was the first time Jesus revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. 
I just love this miracle because, again, there was no need here. And there was a need for more wine, but there wasn't a need for a miracle necessarily, right? It was not absolutely necessary that Jesus did this. It would cause the family a little bit of uncomfortability, some shame, you know, but it wasn't like a healing or like a deliverance. You know what I mean? It's not big in that way. He was just moved with compassion because he loves people, because he loved his mother and he honored her. He loved this family and, and the friends that were there and he provided honor for them. He also provided fun and allowed the celebration to continue even after they were already drunk. And it was good wine, y'all, and it was a lot of it. I just... I love that this was the first one, too, that we have recorded because I I feel like it breaks the religious mold that we want to constantly put on Jesus. In fact, I use this example to answer some questions sometimes for people. Like there, There is this verse in Ecclesiastes that says something like, why try to be too good. Why destroy yourself? (laughs) Why destroy yourself by being too good? Is that possible? This miracle almost proves that, doesn't it? Like, have fun, let loose, celebrate a wedding. It is good. And I just love Jesus. He is the provider. He wants us to have good things, even when they aren't necessary things. The desires of our heart, he sees them and he cares about them. And he moves when we ask. Just an amazing, to me, fascinating example. But this next one is just as fascinating. And it's, it has to do with the disciples, Peter in particular, on a beach. John 21. Now this one happens, I do need to give you a little context. It is after the death and resurrection of Jesus. He has only appeared to his disciples two other times before this example, after the resurrection. So I picture them kind of just sitting around like, now what? We're just waiting on Jesus to show up. Like, where do we find him? We don't even know where to go to look. Like, they're just kind of sitting around. Now what? Right? Starting in verse 1. John 21, verse 1. Later, Jesus appeared again to the disciples beside the Sea of Galilee. This is how it happened. Several of the disciples were there. Simon Peter, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, Nathaniel from Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples. So there's seven of them. Peter, Simon Peter said, I'm going fishing. If you've seen the Chosen series, just picture Simon Peter. Right? You can like picture him in your mind. He's antsy. He wants to, he's a doer, right? He's an action guy. He wants to get stuff done and he's just sitting around. He's probably going stir crazy and he's like, you know what? I can't sit here anymore. I'm going fishing. We'll come too, they all said. So they went out in the boat, but they caught nothing all night. At dawn, Jesus was standing on the beach, but the disciples couldn't see who he was. He called out, fellows, have you caught any fish? No, they replied. Then he said, throw out your net on the right-hand side of the boat, and you'll get some. So they were like, what can it hurt? (laughs) Right? They did, and they couldn't haul in the net because there were so many fish in it. Then the disciple Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his tunic, for he had stripped for work, jumped into the water, and headed to shore. The others stayed with the boat and pulled the loaded net to the shore, for they were only about 100 yards from shore. When they got there, they found breakfast waiting for them. This is the detail I love. 
Breakfast was waiting for them, fish cooking over a charcoal fire and some bread. Bring some of the fish you've just caught, Jesus said. So Simon Peter went aboard and dragged the net to shore. There were 153 large fish, yet the net hadn't been torn. Now come and have some breakfast, Jesus said. None of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Then Jesus served them the breakfast and the fish. It was the third time Jesus had appeared to his disciples since he had been raised from the dead. Jesus was raised from the dead, y'all. And he bothered to show up on a beach and cook and serve them breakfast. We're going to talk about this next week, but the humbling nature, the humility of Jesus. I just, the fact that he did this, he served them. Can you picture him preparing a fire, waiting for them to get done out on their little futile mission? Right? They're out there not catching a darn thing, and he's making them breakfast on the beach, just waiting for them to come and see that it's him. I just can't get over the, it's almost silly to think about. And yet Jesus served them. He still found it valuable enough to cook his disciples breakfast on the beach and motivate them again for ministry, which is the part we didn't read of this passage that I also love. He, he calls Peter back, back into ministry in just the most genius way possible. Read the rest of that passage if you want to see what I mean for that. But this is, this is the, that forgiveness piece of breaking bread together, by the way. Jesus was the one wronged here. Peter denied Jesus three times while Jesus was being brutally beaten and tortured and led to his death. And Jesus shows him forgiveness without even being asked for it, at least that we can see by serving him breakfast on a beach. Fascinating to me. Here's the fifth example. I said four earlier. I meant five. The fifth example is the Last Supper, which we find we're going to read out of Mark 14 today, starting in verse 12. On the first day of the Festival of Unleavened Bread, are you guys still with me? Can we keep going? I know these are like, I want to just dive into each one of these. They might have already captured your imagination, but can we keep going? Number five. Okay. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb is sacrificed, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go to prepare the Passover meal for you? So Jesus sent two of them into Jerusalem with these instructions. As you go into the city, a man carrying a pitcher of water will meet you. Follow him. Kind of creepy, but okay. At the house he enters, say to the owner, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I can eat the Passover meal with my disciples? He will take you upstairs to a large room that is already set up. That is where you should prepare our meal. I just, I point out these details because a lot of times people ask me, how do I know that it's the Holy Spirit speaking to me? Right? The Holy Spirit says weird stuff like this. Sometimes you just got to go with it. Right? Jesus knows what he's talking about, even when it sounds like he doesn't. Over and over to the disciples, he says crazy things, and they just have to obey and trust, have faith that it's going to work out. That is, by the way, how you know that it's the Holy Spirit talking to you. You follow it, and if it works out, it was the Holy Spirit. People hate that answer, but that's the answer. That is where you should prepare our meal. So the two disciples went into the city and found everything just as Jesus had said, and they prepared the Passover meal there. Of course they did, because Jesus said it. 
Amen. In the evening, Jesus arrived with the 12. As they were at the table eating, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, one of you eating with me here will betray me. Greatly distressed, each one asked in turn, am I the one? Can you imagine the panic of that question? Am I the one that will betray you? He replied, it is one of you 12 who is eating from this bowl with me. For the Son of Man must die, as the scriptures declared long ago, but how terrible it will be for the one who betrays him. It would be far better for that man if he had never been born. As they were eating, Jesus took some bread and blessed it. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples, saying, Take it, for this is my body. And he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. He gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice for many. I tell you the truth, I will not drink wine again until the day I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And then they sang a hymn and went out to the Mount of Olives. So this example is a little bit different because it isn't exactly Jesus providing for the disciples in the same way that he did in the other ones. He didn't quite provide the food. Some random guy that provided the room and the food provided it for them. But he did use the food as a piece of discipline to be built into their daily lives henceforth and forevermore, right? Jesus knew at that point that he was headed into the worst hours of his life. He knew that the coming moments would define everything that he did and said, everything they did and said, everything for all of time, really. But this was the moment, and he gave his disciples something to hold on to, something to anchor their souls, a a practice and a discipline to anchor their souls. I don't think it's a coincidence that it has to do with food. I don't think it's a coincidence that it's something that we do every day, multiple times a day. We eat, right? When we sit down to eat, we should be thanking Jesus. This is where that practice comes from, by the way, of praying over our food. It's communion. We make it very religious and flashy. We're going to take communion together as a church next week on Easter Sunday. But it's really about that every day, sitting with each other, celebrating and thanking Jesus. That's the power of it. Thanking the provider who loves us enough he sent his son. And who is so moved with compassion for us that he provides with good things to eat. We should be remembering Jesus' body broken for us and the fact that he came as a man, a human man in the flesh, fully God and fully man for us, that he humbled himself to do that, that he allowed his blood to be spilled, which confirms the covenant between God and his people, poured out intentionally, not by accident, as a sacrifice for so many. It's an incredibly important example among all of these, for all of those reasons. It is, it is one of the only pieces of religion that Jesus built into our faith, actually. Communion and baptism, which you saw celebrated today. So what do all these examples mean for us, right? Last week we gave examples and then we broke it down. What does this mean for us? And just as I said last week, obviously we should be feeding people, practicing hospitality, which we talked about in depth last week, following Jesus' example, providing belonging and hospitality toward others. But what else? What else does it mean for us? Number one, he is the provider and 
He has more than enough. More than enough. He is your provider, not your job, not your husband or wife, not your parents, not anyone. He is your provider. He provides through those things sometimes, or people, but he provides all good things. We acknowledge that he is the provider in more ways than just asking him for things, by the way. We acknowledge that he is the provider by observing a Sabbath day, for example. Right, we set aside one day to not work, to purposefully put down work. Say, God, you are the provider. Yes, I could work. I could get more money during this time, but you are the provider. I honor you. I give you this time. Right, observing a Sabbath day does that. Tithing acknowledges this as well. We give him 10%, acknowledging that we don't have enough to cover everything, but I'm giving it to you anyway because I trust that you are the provider. We obey him in all things, knowing that he will provide. But the second part of this is important too. Not only is he, is, he is the provider, but in all of these examples, I see him providing more than enough. Not too much, but more than enough. And sometimes I hear people say things like, you know, I, I, I don't want to pray for this little thing in my life because I know there are people who have it so much worse. Do you think God only has enough healing for this many people, but not, like there's not enough to go around, so you don't want to pray for your little thing because there are bigger things? It's not how this works. He has more than enough. He, he does not have limited resources. You're not going to help God out by only asking for what you absolutely need. Right? Ask him. Ask the provider of all good things. He has more than enough for you, more than enough for all his people. He's got you. He is the provider, and he has more than enough. Number two, the second thing it means for us is that he is moved with compassion when his people are hungry. It's important to know that he moves with compassion for you. Not only is he the provider, he wants to provide for you. He does it when he doesn't even have to. He wants life for you and life abundantly. Again, it's about limiting God. We limit him with our requests a lot. Oh God, if you could just do this, if you could just... No, ask God for the best, the highest possible good. What's the best thing that you can think of? And I, I lead people through this sometimes when they're like, can you pray for me and this and this? And I'm like, okay, how do you want to pray? Let me partner with you in the way, you know, you want to see the solution happen. And they're like, well, he could do this. If he could just do, like they're thinking of the lowest possible thing that would get them through. If, if he could do this, you know, we could also pray for that. No, let's just pray for that. Why are we praying for the lowest possible good when we serve a God who is so big, so amazing? Let's pray for the highest thing. What is the best thing you can think of that would happen? Let's pray for that. Can you raise your faith to that? He's moved with compassion for us. He loves us so much. He is a good father and he wants good things, great things for his children. And help usually comes from the most unlikely sources when it's God. Nobody would have even fathomed the fact that he could make so much bread and fish out of teensy little five loaves, and right? Nobody, nobody would have thought that. Nobody would have thought his provision for tax would come out of a fish's mouth. 
or that they would go to a tax collector's house to eat that evening. Like he over and over and over surprises us in the craziest ways, but he is moved with compassion when his people have needs. Number three, third thing we can take from this is that he is the bread of life. So not only does he provide bread, but he is the bread of life. Right? Remember, everything with God that I see in the Bible is both physical and spiritual. Sometimes we want to go in one direction or the other. We get very spiritual about things and we forget the physical, or we get very physical about things and, and we forget the spiritual side, but it is both with Jesus. He is the bread of life. He made it very clear at certain points that following him didn't mean you would never have to work again. It didn't mean, you know, you'd be living the lifestyles of the rich and the famous, that you would be able to sit back and not be productive anymore. It's not what following Jesus is. Oftentimes we think that when we come to him for the first time. Life should be easy now, right? God's going to just do what I need him to do, and I'm done. I can sit back. A lot of our prayers are sort of like that, too, sometimes. Just God can do it, and I'll just sit here and do nothing. It's not what this was about. Jesus wasn't going to just open up a bakery and give out food for the rest of eternity. He came for a spiritual satisfaction of hunger, not just physical, right? He does provide spiritual food and drink, all that we could ever need. He is our sustenance. The air we breathe, the food we eat, he satisfies our cravings. He fills the empty voids. He is more than enough. To demonstrate this, I have another video for you. Last week I showed you a clip. I have another one today. Before I show you this clip, let me assure you I have fact-checked this study. Uh, the link to the actual study is in the sermon notes if you want to fact-check it as well. The guy on this video says that they he, he's explaining a study done on Bible readers, people that have been reading the Bible. They just pulled them, some various things. He says 40,000 Americans in the video, but when I fact-check it, I found out it's actually, it was a worldwide study, not just Americans. Over 400,000 people were pulled. If you don't read studies very often, I'm always looking at like statistics and things studied in the world. That's an astounding number. Uh, apparent, like, apparently all you need for a respectable study is like 500 to 1,000 people. They pulled 400,000 people, y'all, okay? It's a ton of Bible readers, and they range from age 8 to age 80, which is also an amazing spread of, and let me just, we'll watch the video and then talk about it a little bit. Watch this. There was a recent study by the Center for Bible Engagement where they pulled 40,000 uh, general population in the U.S. from 8 to 80, and they just wanted to see how we are engaging with Scripture. Right. And they discovered something that actually became kind of the profound discovery of the entire study. It, they weren't even looking for this, and this is kind of became the highlight of the study. Right. Um, when we're in the Scripture one time a week, and that could be church on Sunday. That's pastor saying you open your Bible, we hear the message. One time a week had negligible effect on some key areas of your life. So I'll, I'm going to spell that out more here in a moment. Two times a week, negligible effect. Now, at three times a week, there was a blip on the map. Like, there was a heartbeat. Something happened, again, a heartbeat. Okay. But here was the profound discovery. 
when we're in the scripture four times a week, it literally spikes off the chart. You would expect that it'd be one, two, th I mean, there'd be a gradual incline right. on the effect and impact that would have in your life, but it was literally one, two, three, four, something radically happens. Okay, you got my curiosity. To this what, extent. What kind of behavior is being affected? Feeling lonely drops 30%. Wow, Ang four times a week in the four Bible. Four times a week in the Bible. Okay. Anger issues drop 32%. Uh, bitterness in relationships, marriage, a relationship with your kids, and so on, drops 40%. Alcoholism drops 57%. Feeling spiritually stagnant. You know, if there was one area when I'm talking with people that, that they'll be honest about is they just feel spiritually stagnant. Ask them the question, how much time are you spending in Scripture? If they're in the Scripture four times a week or more, it drops 60%. Wow. Viewing pornography drops 61%. That's very important. Now, on a flip positive side, sharing your faith wow. jumps 200%. Wow. Because you have a confidence in God's word. And then discipling others jumps 230%. That's, that's amazing right there. Isn't that amazing? Let me just read those to you again. Loneliness drops 30%. Anger, 32%. Bitterness in relationships drops 40%. Alcoholism, 57%. Feeling spiritually stagnant, 60%. Pornography, 61%. I thought he said 62%. I might have gotten that wrong. But sharing your faith jumps 200%. Discipling others, 230%. Four times a week in the Word. It is amazing how Jesus really is the bread of life. You can improve your life just by reading his words spoken 2,000 years ago. The, the word of God can improve your life in ways you never thought possible. Jesus is the word. And don't forget what I've been sharing from the book, Jesus Skeptic, from last week, remember? Did anyone order it, by the way? Anyone reading it with me? I'd love people to talk about this with. Order it this week. I'm going to ask again. <laughs> it's in the sermon notes. Let me know later if you are. I would love to have somebody to talk about it with. But the teachings of Jesus really have changed humanity forever. The ripple effects of what he taught were unique on planet Earth. The, the cultures that adopted Christianity are far better off than the ones that haven't. And it is an amazing study. Now, before we end today, I want to mention this as well, because it is Palm Sunday today. One week until Easter, Resurrection Day, where we get to celebrate the amazing, the, the biggest thing that Jesus did. And I think it's important to mention here on this day, the biggest lesson of Palm Sunday. A one week is all it took. You know what happened on Palm Sunday, right? Jesus rode into town, triumphal entry. Everybody was for him, cheering for him. They were ready for him to come in and, and kick out the Romans and make them vindicated, right? To, to raise up the Jewish people on planet Earth and kick out everybody else. One week is all it took, less than a week really, for those same crowds that were cheering for him to turn on him savagely. When he was feeding them, loving them, healing them, including them, giving them miracle bread, they were all for him. They thought 
he would lead them to revolution, to taking down the Romans, vindicating them once and for all. They were all for it on Sunday. But by Friday, they would turn on him to such a degree that he could be found hanging on a cross, the worst torture that they were able to imagine at that point. That's how angry, not meeting their needs in exactly the way they wanted, made them. He didn't do what they wanted. He didn't keep feeding them miracle bread. He didn't deliver them in exactly the way they were asking for. But what they couldn't see is that the Father had a much bigger picture in mind. And he wanted to save everyone for all eternity, not just one people group in one space and time. They couldn't see past their own selfish desires. They wanted one small good thing. God had so much greater for them and for all of us too. That's why it's important to remember here that God isn't beholden to us. To our every whim. Sometimes we ask him for things and he doesn't give them to us. It's important to remember sometimes you have to be careful what you ask for. And that God knows better than we know. Not that you shouldn't keep knocking. Keep asking. That I believe sometimes when we do that, God changes us rather than our circumstances. He puts us on a better footing. And we now understand things differently. God isn't beholden to us. We have to be able to trust him, have faith that Jesus is enough. He really is enough. And all these things are true. God is the provider and he has enough. He's moved with compassion for you and he is the bread of life. He is all that you need. Some of us are struggling today. We barely made it into church. We're financial issues, marriage issues, whatever it is. We came in beaten up, struggling. And after watching a video like this and studying Jesus and his behavior, I almost want to just pretend I'm a doctor for a minute and prescribe you Bible reading. (laughs) Prescribe you learning about Jesus. I dive in. Sometimes I think new believers are like, yeah, 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 I'll take the Bible, but like, I don't know if I'm actually going to read it. I take the time to show them, like, start reading in John, go slow, move slow through it, ask God what he has for you out of that passage. And I think sometimes they walk out like, "Mm, yeah, thank you, but you're the pastor, you have to say that. The Bible's boring, and I don't understand it, and uh, maybe once, you know? It really is the bread of life. Jesus is the bread of life. Read it. He has so much more for you. He wants life and life abundantly for you. Good things for you. He's got so much more in mind for you than you do. I promise. He's got purpose for you. He wants to work through you, through all the pain and and shame and, and stuff that you've been through. He can turn that into good in ways you cannot even imagine. He can do all of that by just studying him, learning from him, being a disciple of his, changing our behavior to him, to the, the heart of Jesus. Amen?
Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you and we praise you for sending your son. Thank you that he actually walked on this earth, that, that he actually worked through people, that it wasn't just edicts from the sky, like untouchable, impossible things. He said, you sent your son so we could see that it's attainable, that, that we can actually live a life of vibrancy, a life of passion and selflessness. We can walk like Jesus did, minister like he did, that we can lay our hands on the sick and see them healed, that we can have the Holy Spirit within us, walking around with us, giving us the wisdom and the words to say to people. God, commission us, send us out, not just with your words, but with your heart. That we would love people genuinely. Welcome them with hospitality. Use new gifts and talents within us. Step out in faith even when it's scary to show the world who you really are. In Jesus' name, with heads bowed and eyes still closed today. Oh, maybe you're, you're here saying, I, I've never given my heart to Jesus. I don't really know what that means. Let me assure you today, it is so easy. The, the initial decision is so easy. Jesus came to make it so. He came to do the hard part on the cross. He took on our sin and shame. All of the selfish things that we've ever done, he took them on the cross and they died with him there. But now all we have to do is call on his name to be saved. Ask him for forgiveness. Because he says yes every time. If we ask him, we believe in him wholeheartedly, we confess it with our mouth, that's all he needs. And he says, you know what? I love you so much that I've already done that for you 2,000 years ago. But today, pray that bold prayer. Step out in faith, asking God for forgiveness, knowing that he will say yes, he will love you and bring you into right relationship with him. Oftentimes we have to say that to somebody. We have to make a move to really solidify that in our heart. So if that's you today, you want to make that decision for the first time, or maybe it's just been a really long time and you want to come back to him. Would you just raise your hand if you're here in the room? I'm in to following Jesus. I'm in. If there's anybody like that here today, raise your hand up high. If you're watching online, you can text the number on the screen. I'd love to help you with that decision. Keep your hand up for just a moment. The ushers have a small card for you with some information on it. Anybody else like that here today? I'm in to following Jesus. Okay. For the rest of you today, as your eyes are closed, I hope that you're reflecting on your own life. We can not only do this for other, we can model it for other people. We can feed them, show them hospitality, be generous with people. But we also have to adjust our mindsets, knowing that God is the provider, that he has more than enough for you. Maybe some of you today, you realize you haven't been praying big enough. You've been putting God in a box, limiting him today you just want prayer that you would be able to see God for who he is, the big amazing provider that he is. Would you raise your hand? I just I want to pray for you. 
that's you today. Father, I thank you and I praise you for this word. Thank you that we get to see your behavior, learn from it, be disciples of it, that we get to sit at your feet and hear your teachings and change because of it. I pray for every single hand raised today that you would bless those decisions, those mindsets, that you would continue teaching us this week as we we move through Holy Week and we learn about all that that means that you experienced before your death on the cross. Speak to hearts and minds. Renew our faith in you. Renew that passion that as our world is desperately looking for a savior, that we would be there, we would have answers for them, that we'd be able to show them with our love and our life exactly who you are. Use us to change the world with the message of the gospel. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Was that a good word? Yes. That was life. That was bread. Thank you, Pastor Candace. Awesome. Would you stand with me? I really believe the reason that one study, why things change when you're in the Word of God, and that is because the Word is not just print. It's just not facts. But when you're born again and the Holy Spirit lives in you, it becomes what is called the rhema word. It's life. It becomes real. Holy Spirit speaks to you. So if you were out running the marathon every day and never ate, how long would you make it? You'd fall over day two. Spiritually, if you're not eating the word of God and you're out working in the fields, you're going to just shrivel up. Hence, the Word of God is so important. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you made a decision to follow Jesus, please let us know by going to fv.church slash I am in. And remember to download our app for more content and helpful links. 